The strong wind was howling and whistling. He was the first Chinese citizen to graduate from Yale University in the mid-19th century. I was born on the 17th of November. She had prominent features. Three of us were old enough to lend a helping hand. He navigated between two vastly different cultures and moved further to realize his dream and promote understanding between the people of China and the United States. Ye Mingxing was a native of Hanyang. I realized no danger. China is really awakening. Come and join us in discovering the incredible journey of Yong Wang in his autobiography, My Life in China and America. Check out the audible stories on radio.cgtn.com and all major podcast platforms. Just search for the podcast Books and Beyond and find My Life in China and America. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable. Coming to you from Beijing, I'm He Yang. Good to have you join us. China's booming courier and delivery sector has been built on the backs of millions of delivery drivers in the country. Consumers benefit from the relatively affordable and speedy service, especially compared to international standards. Most courier and delivery men and women don't see much of a career growth, though. A latest report found that career development programs and workshops available are unattractive to couriers. We discuss how to develop career paths and ladders for delivery workers. And over the past three decades, the number of close friends Americans has plummeted. This friendship recession is particularly bad for men, apparently, as a survey has found. So we discuss: Is it really a problem in not having close friends? We also have a special show coming up on May the twentieth, which is Wu Arling in Chinese, a special, a singular occasion to profess love to someone special. We're gonna help you do it. We also discuss all things love and relationship. We wanna know your opinion, obviously, and that can be done through a roundtable love survey. To participate on the show and complete the survey, please go to. CGT and Radio Weibo or the RT Army group chat on WeChat. For today's program, I'm joined by Ding Hong in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. First on today's show. Over the past decade, food delivery apps have exploded in popularity in China. The country's food delivery industry is three times larger than the U.S.'s, employing seven million drivers who zip through cities. On electric bikes and scooters, according to the National Statistics Bureau, by the end of 2021, the delivery sector has created 13 million delivery jobs, but they are hardly careers. Companies have rolled out training workshops and career development programs for delivery workers, but to lukewarm response. So, Ding Hong, fill us in on. The series of programs that are launched to build career paths for couriers, and apparently, folks aren't really taking the bait. Yeah, because、um, previously Chinese authorities have really set up some professional standards for couriers in order to offer them a clearer career path and try to,、uh, you know, by the way, to try to regulate this industry as well. For example. 
Uh, back in July 2019, the Chinese government issued a notice stressing that vocational training for couriers and encourage cooperation between corporations and those educational institutions. And then, in another case, in January 2020, China's Ministry of Human Resources and Social Security, as well as the State Post Bureau, issued a national standard of couriers. Couriers are basically entitled to apply for a number of professional ranks. Like they can, I, I guess they can apply for five different categories, five different professional ranks, from a junior level to a very senior technician to to a, a higher level, I, I guess. And they will be evaluated from various aspects, including like their skills in making packages. Their their operational sorting skill and accountability and security check and how to operate you know smart mailboxes etc etc. So the government is trying to do something to try to regulate and provide a better you know career path for these guys. That's for sure. What do you think is the essence of this issue situation that we have at hand here, Josh? Do you think it's a problem? Let's say a delivery worker enters the sector, let's say at twenty years old, and ten years later he's still doing exactly the same job and not necessarily seeing, oh, what else can I do? How can I progress in my career? This is no longer a job that I'm waiting for the daily wage. But actually, there's room for growth to something of better pay, better benefits, and maybe something, something out there that is more than what I'm doing right now. I mean, is this something you think a problem or not? I guess that it it is a problem to some degree, especially if one is trying to advance their career, and if you're working for a, a low hourly wage and your contract. May even be on something like a zero hours contract, and a lot of these courier services are actually done almost like freelance jobs. People can do them; they can just sign up and then become a delivery driver, for example. It depends on the level you're talking about. So, I think that it is tricky for people, and also, I think that a lot of people see careers in as a kind of trajectory that you have to invest in early on. And I guess that if you're investing a lot of your Younger years, because this job is quite can be quite physically demanding, then I can I can understand how it may worry you if you've got to the age where you feel you've you've invested too much time in it, and I, I think this job is particularly、uh, challenging. I think the essence of the issue may lie in the physical demands of it. I think that、um, as often these jobs involve lifting and carrying or spending long hours on the road, even cycling.、Uh, I know that. In my own country, there's a a program called Deliveroo, which is quite popular, and you often people cycle. There's also time pressures, safety concerns, and irregular hours. So th- the whole and but what we're talking about here are really the actual courier drivers, right? There's of course there's other positions in this service, and it's a multi-billion-dollar industry. So、um, there are definitely career paths in this industry. But if we're talking about courier drivers specifically, I think that、uh, it's definitely finite. Also, we need to acknowledge that there's quite a difference between a job and a career. Although I think that these two words have various interpretations, but a lot of people are doing this kind of work 
especially courier drivers, just to earn money then, and they don't see it as a career. And I think that that's why this issue is slightly complex. But there are certainly opportunities in this industry, like any multi-billion dollar industry, to have a career. It certainly wouldn't be a multi-billion dollar industry the world over if it didn't have career opportunities, right? And there's career managers, sales representatives, dispatchers, customer service representatives. There's, there's all sorts of jobs here. Yes, you point out a very good point, which I think applies to every industry that the brightest, most hardworking, and possibly those with really good person skills, people skills, they manage to stand out from the pack and they can possibly get the promotion. And as I was doing research, looking at, let's say, American delivery jobs for companies like FedEx as an EMS as such, most people start with being a package handler, and then you can progress from there even up to, you know, managerial or high level managerial roles that is possible. But if we look at this industry in general in China, there are only going to be a very limited number of people who can get up there, right? And for the vast majority of those 13 million delivery workers that are employed in this sector, they probably don't get the chance. So yes, we acknowledge that if you're the best of the best, cream of the crop, then you get these chances. But if you look at the bigger industry, though, it's probably time to explore possibilities of what can people do, you know, after a few years in this very taxing and physically demanding job. And I think that is what the interest of the discussion has been going. And that is why these career development programs or training workshops have been set up in the first place. Do you see that there is maybe this sore spot in this industry that after years of growing pains, the whole society has more or less seen now? Yeah, that's at least that's a beautiful wish on the part of either policymakers or the the corporation managers as well. But uh, at least uh, judging from the current situation, I think these um, uh, training programs or career path development programs tailor-made for these guys are not going so well at the moment. That's according to a recent report by the, the Beijing-based Workers Daily. For example, back in 2019, uh, in 2019, only 20 couriers acquired junior-level courier certification in the city of Hangzhou. And if we put that into a bigger picture, there were more than 60,000 couriers in Hangzhou in that year. And also in the last year, only 34 couriers in Shanghai ended up getting a level 2 courier certification, whereas it's estimated that there are more than 150,000 people in this industry in Shanghai last year. So I guess currently the the channels of, um, you know, promotion is relatively narrow because um, uh, I guess the reality is many people on the part of many people who decided to 
to take up a job in this particular industry in the first place. Their thinking, their thought is really this is a temporary occupation I take、uh, to make some quick money. Maybe and even in the case of some young people who newly graduate from college, because of the current economic situation, they might find it a little challenging to find a proper white collar office work. So they decided to to do a delivery temporarily to save up some money and prepare for a better future. So yeah, that's something we need to address. But、um, it's really a structural problem, and it really takes time. It is indeed a structural problem when you've got a legion of young people with college degrees, and they don't seem to find better job opportunities. Instead, they feel that being a delivery worker is what can earn you a decent wage, and this is what you can get at the moment. And there are some structural. Issues that are in place, because where are the jobs, right? Where are the jobs where the skills and the education are perfectly matched? And it's difficult to decipher that issue right now. And why is this happening in mass scale? And also, when we look at these training workshops,、um, what I find to be quite typical Chinese here, or, or some of these encouragement. Career progression programs. What they tell you to do is to get another professional title. It's it's like what we have in school always. It's take a test to prove yourself, take an exam, acquire this a、uh, title through exams as such, and therefore you're supposed to have more skills, and then you get acknowledged, and let's see if. Better pay or treatment comes with it. If not, then people obviously don't really have the motivation. But is this a good way to motivate people or to sort of help people to elevate to the next level, so to speak? Asking them to take more exams and acquire these job titles. What do you think, Josh? Well, I agree that to some degree it's. Pretty useless, but I also think that it's no different to the way academia really works. I think that, yeah, internally these courier companies, like I know that companies like DHL and FedEx and UPS, they offer loads of internal training programs and development programs where, yes, they have to pass tests in order to get other titles and stuff like this. But ultimately, I also think that a lot of university Exams and titles and tests are completely useless and mean nothing. So I don't think that I don't think it's that vastly different actually the way it works. And I think that often actually a lot of these training programs internally at these companies are much more practical than academic ones because at least you have a tangible result. You have something at the end of it. And yeah, it, it may seem a bit pointless, but also you know that if you pass that test, if you get that qualification. Then you're able, you're qualified and able to do this job. It's quite specific and rigid compared to, I guess, academic qualifications or other things internally at most of our, for most people in our jobs. But and this isn't just in the courier industry. This is with all sorts of practical industries. For example, I have a cousin who's quite a successful welder, and he had to do many of these tests and many of these exams. But 
it ultimately resulted in him being qualified to do very niche welding jobs, which are very profitable. So I think if you really go down that path, it can be quite profitable in the long run. And other exams that I know I've done haven't been so, definitely. Mm. Yeah, I very much concur on this particular point. You know, some of these are so-called um, training programs for your career. Uh, are more often than not, um, not to say useless, but they have limited value, you know, realistically speaking. This is not only, you know, judged from my personal experience, but from my discussion with my colleagues and, you know, friends from other, from other industries, from other occupations. More often than not, it is just a, a, a mission to, to satisfy some people's, um, managerial tasks let's put it in this way and uh, more often than not these uh, training programs can be very very time consuming for example in the case of this uh, career industry according to the research i have conducted in order to acquire higher rankings um you really need to take attend trainings which can be very very energy and time consuming because in order to apply for the most basic or the most um, primary level of career certification, um, a courier needs to attend at least 53 classes of training. Um, and if you do some math or some basic calculation here, this roughly means seven workdays for a courier. And uh, during this period, this guy can do a lot of things, you know, to earn a lot of money. So. That's really one thing, because mm -hmm. really for this particular industry, I think it's very time incentive. The most important thing for people working in this particular industry is really about time. If they want to make as much money as possible, because the more deliveries you can handle, the more parcels you deliver to your customers, the more money you can earn. That's the most basic reality. Yes, this is a job that is built upon the hours that you put in. And a lot of the workers are so hardworking that they would go to extremes to work long hours and try their best to squeeze the time, make sure that every order is finished and completed at the minimal amount of time. And it's a stressful job in that sense as well as also, you know, safety is another issue. And then we've seen labor contract issues arise as well. And for delivery workers, I don't think any worker in any industry who plan to continue to earn money would say no to programs or opportunities that can, in fact, upskill and retrain you to be more prepared for tomorrow's work. But the problem is, what is being offered here? That also, you know, when you look at the delivery workers, then if they attend these classes, then like Ding Hong mentioned earlier, they're giving up time and opportunity to make quick cash, which is the most important thing for a lot of workers doing the job. So Josh, what do you see as, you know, the way forward? How can these career development programs be improved? Or are there other ways to make the future shine for hardworking delivery workers? 
Well, I'm of the opinion, and maybe this is just my upbringing um, and the people that I've been brought up around, but my, my opinion is that if you work hard, whatever it is you're doing, you're gonna, something will happen. You will get a break, or we call it, you'll get a break, which doesn't mean that you'll get to rest. It means that you will get an opportunity where you'll either get promoted or something good will happen to you. And so as far as improving these develop career development programs, I think that there probably is a lot that can be done. Um, but I, I think ultimately you're right that it's a slightly complex issue because I think you're right that a lot of people are doing it just to get quick cash. I wouldn't say easy cash because it's pretty hard physical labor, yes. but it's definitely something that as long as you're willing to put the physical effort into, you can get paid for it. But there's a lot of jobs like that in the world and there, and there always will be. Well, unless robots and AI replace us all, but that's another conversation. But right now, there's plenty of opportunities to do this, not just in currying, but all sorts of stuff. So that will always be a big part of their employee pool. And I don't think there's anything that can change there. I, I think that in terms of improving the training program, I guess that just like anything, what people want is uh, tangible results. And again, I, I have to take my hat off to some of these training programs and the people that pursue them, because I think that often they do produce a lot more tangible, quick promotions than a lot of training programs and qualifications that uh, people do on their own accord outside of this. Um, so yeah, it's honestly, it's quite difficult for me to suggest how they could be improved in that regard. Well, in my opinion, you know, personal initiative on the part of these couriers is really the most vital thing, regardless of how many so-called training opportunities that your corporation, your employers can offer you. If you are lazy, if you don't have a drive to towards self-promotion, towards uh, strengthening your, your personal capability, it's useless. So really, I think... Because now, of course, on the other hand, I, I guess when we talk about this uh, industry, it is an industry that arguably everybody can do. But in order to be a good performer, it also requires some specific techniques like uh, a very reasonable or a very scientific route planning, service level, your communication skills. These skills are all very, very important if you want to be a good performer. But these skills should really be gained through your personal initiative rather than something mandatory that your company tells you this is something you, you have to do. No, that's not the way to go. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, ever since I realized that we're going to do this topic on Roundtable, I conducted like a personal survey a little bit. And there's this delivery guy that we absolutely love in our neighborhood and he's so reliable and does the job really efficiently and also he always has a big smile on his face when he's greeting the customers and when he first started doing this job about six years ago i believe um i remember him carrying a business card so you know just asking for oh you know if you or a resident in our in this neighborhood, you know, I, I covered this turf. Um, please 
bring your service to me next time. And, you know, really taking the initiative and taking the job seriously. And I was so impressed by this guy for, you know, six years. And the other day I asked him, um, what do you see maybe as the next step in the future, possibly? I know he has two kids back at home. And he said, well, I want to accumulate enough money to maybe open a small shop back at home. But as you know, brick and mortar businesses are not so profitable these days. So he's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place in that sense. And therefore, he's kind of stuck keep on doing the delivery work, which he can do very well. But what about the future? I think for those who can be promoted to managerial roles in a delivery company, like the big ones we know in this country, yeah, some people get that opportunity. But that is such a slim chance, even for the most hardworking people. And that's why I think this issue really deserves the attention of policymakers, of those who are involved. And we're looking at a workforce that is aging, although now it's not maybe that obvious. But every day, if you go to the streets in China and you see these young people on the scooters delivering goods and parcels all over the city, but you can't help and wonder what happens in 10 years, you know? And then is this industry going to continue to thrive? And what about all these folks? What are they going to do once they're not so young and fast on the bike? Where's the future for them? Coming up next, are men suffering from a friendship recession? Stay tuned. Delve into a world of words with Books and Beyond, a podcast made especially for audiobook lovers. I came into the world as the youngest of five children. I wondered what Her Majesty would be like. Fie upon you, limpid one. Why have you taken... Immerse yourself in gripping stories and timeless classics from the comfort of your own personal space. Sun Zi underlined three points on the context game There was initiative. no better wine, and not to mention... The Whether you're a bookworm or a casual listener, our carefully curated selection of audiobooks will transport you to new worlds and stir your imagination. Subscribe to Books and Beyond and start your audiobook adventure now on radio.cgtn.com. Or your favorite podcast app. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable with myself, He Young. I'm joined by Ding Hong in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Coming up, over the past three decades, the number of close friends Americans have has plummeted. Recent surveys found that this friendship recession is particularly bad for men, and single men fare the worst. 
One in five American men who are unmarried and not in a romantic relationship report not having any close friends. Is that a problem? And we've all been there, waking up in the middle of the night and contemplating how to fall back asleep. One thing apparently you should not do is checking your clock. Why is it? Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcasts, and please keep sending us your comments, thoughts, and questions to ezfmroundtable at foxmail dot com. Your voice could be featured in the show in our heart to heart segment. We're also having a special show coming up on May the twentieth, which is Warling in Chinese, a singular occasion to profess love to someone special. To participate, also let us know what you think on the subject. We would really appreciate it if you could take a minute out of your busy life and complete a roundtable love survey. And there is a place to do that. Please go to CGT and Radio Weibo or the RT Army group chat on WeChat. Now on roundtable as we continue today's discussion. American men are reportedly experiencing a friendship recession, with the majority of them struggling to form and maintain close friendships. Survey Center on American Life found that single men suffer the most from a lack of close friends and meaningful relationships. Well, tell us what's going on about this survey. Okay, so、um, it's a not very optimistic picture. Uh, Why is it in general? Because <laughs> according to the survey, I'm not sure, but according to this survey, the percentage of American men with at least six close friends fell by half since the year 1990, from 55 percent some thirty、uh, years ago to 27 percent currently. And according to the study, percentage of men without any close friends have dropped from somewhere around three percent to fifteen percent, a fivefold increase. And what's shocking to me is that according to this survey, even if a man has a couple of close friends, it is even for for these people they are not in great shape because. Americans with one close friends, according to this report, are really not any less lonely or isolated than those without any close friends at all, according to the survey. So, <laughs> I don't Interesting. know. Interesting, Josh. You are a British gentleman, and how do you make of this story? I think it makes a lot of sense, but I think that it the issue is a lot more complex than、mm-hmm. this. As, That's why we're talking about all, it. Yeah, I mean, friendship is complex. What friendship means? I mean, to call somebody a friend, what does that mean exactly? When does somebody transcend the position of acquaintance and become a friend? Right? I think there's different levels of friendship, and we're talking about close friendships here. But again, what is a close friendship? At what point does a friend become a close friend? All of this is very subjective, and it's not very clear. And I think. It's definitely true that men struggle with、um, certain levels of communication, and I think also、uh, socialization and things like this, especially when it comes to disclosing emotional issues and things like this. I think this is pretty well known. I, I 
I think this is true. I think this needs to be improved. I know myself, I'll admit, I need to improve this a lot as well. And I guess that this is probably a barrier to men making friends. But I do think, though, although this is the case, I think that often men, it seems to me that although they have fewer friends, those few friends tend to be quite close. And so there is possibly an argument here for quality over quantity, maybe. Um, I actually did find a journal, and I know that one has to be careful to have an argument in their head and then find data and stuff to back it up, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can find anything on the internet to support <laughs> your argument, right? Yep. But I did find a study. I did find a study published in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships that found that men may place a greater emphasis on the quality of their friendships rather than the quantity. Also, I found uh, a study published in the American Journal of Men's Health and they found that men value things like shared experiences, such as sports, for example, doing sports together. This is getting really um, traditional ma manly, <laughs> but anything, anyway, just doing some sort of activity together, I think men seem to bond better over this. And um, maybe that's because those activities break down that initial awkwardness that men feel to get intimate and disclose emotion. And I think that when men don't have those opportunities to do sports, for example, or do any kind of group activity, it can be hard for them to break that initial ice. I think that ice is a bit thicker often with guys. And um, yeah, so I think it's complex. I think so too. <laughs> yeah, there is something as a woman, we find it a little bit hard to truly understand. That is, why is it so awkward for men to embrace each other? Because for women, it is so easy. And these are some of the moments that I love being a female. That is, we are socially conditioned, so we're comfortable and, mm. you know, being conditioned is also key here. We're brought up feeling it's okay to mm. show emotion and always make complimentary comments to each other. And that just quickly breaks the ice between women and sometimes even with the opposite sex as well. And you form this close bond rather easily with, without so much fuss, it feels. And you get emotional support from your female friends. And maybe it's just me. Tell me if it's just me or you're like this as well. You know, having this affirmation from your hmm. girlfriends. And or I don't know if it works the same for men. Like, do you tell each other that I love you? Probably not. Is that too gross for you? But it's not for women. And it's so great to have that affirmation so easily for each other. Hmm. And... Yeah, so female friendship can be really great that way. But does it mm. work differently for, for guys? Yeah, I think it's um, significantly differently, to be honest. You know, because uh, I think the bigger picture, I guess, we need to take into account here is really that, generally speaking, the society has been harsher towards female than towards men because of historical and social norms. That's true. And because growing up, men or boys tend to, you know, win more easy phrases from other people, whereas social norms towards women or towards girls is less friendly. All kinds of uh, social norms or restrictions put onto our female 
colleagues. So, so I think the most direct result of these、uh, social norms is that men are probably more self-centered compared to women. That's true, I think, because so, yeah. So it's really difficult for men get together to show their appreciation towards another man. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible, but compared to Our female colleagues, it's really, really more challenging. So, really, I think、um, compared to women, men feel less comfortable sharing their feelings, or even showing their vulnerability, or seeking emotional support from their friends. This traditional norm regarding, say, masculinity, it is a really, you know, haunting. I agree completely. I don't think though that it's only that men have trouble. Disclosing their feelings and talking about them, it's also that when they do so, men don't know how to receive or comfort other people that tell them about their feelings. It's just <laughs>、yeah. like it's really it doesn't work either way. I know that there's been moments in my life where I've thought, okay, I'm going to I'm going to do it. I'm going to talk to a friend about my feelings, and then it just the conversation goes nowhere, and they're like, well, do you want another beer? And then it's like, <laughs> okay, something like this. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. And then we just have another beer instead.、Um, and yeah, I guess that the thing is, is that really, I think what we're talking about here is social socialization, which is quite a complex issue that we don't need to get into. But really, I think men have. I agree that men have been socialized. I don't know if this is really deep in our biological essence so much, but rather that we've. Been socialized, conditioned to be more independent and self-reliant, which then makes it harder, obviously, to make bonds. And I, I think that this might be one reason because men traditionally, I think, value autonomy and self-sufficiency in their friendships, and they like to be quote unquote reliable and steady and things like this. But this isn't what friendship is really formed on. Friendship, like any relationship, is about. Communication and it is about reliability, but it's also about trust and it's about knowing that they're there to support you when you need them. And I guess that this, combined with being autonomous and、um, independent, is quite a tricky thing because you can't be independent all the time, right? You can't have a friendship and a relationship with someone and be completely independent. You have to let them in at some point, and I guess we struggle with that sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. And what's really interesting is that, according to at least this one survey coming from the U.S.,、um, it found that、um, younger men, like those of the millennial generation, suffer from this kind of so-called friendship recession more than older guys, in the sense that you. It's a little bit strange because younger men, you would think, are possibly less subject to. Those traditional values of maybe you have to be macho, however you define that, or you know, being this、um, loner or self-sufficient strong guy or whatever it is, you would think that the younger generation possibly、mm. would shrug that off a bit more. But when you look at the number of friendships or close friendships they have, it seems like they have. In general, a smaller percentage. So, so that's kind of interesting to me.、Um, yeah.、Mm-hmm. So basically, my understanding of this particular phenomenon is that it has a lot to do with the some of the 
structural changes regarding our say workplaces, work environment, and the rise of tech, the rise of the internet, social media, this kind of stuff. Because you know, more often than not, the most common place where I guess not only for Americans but for Chinese, for many people across the world, for us to to develop a very close friendship is. On the job,、uh, not necessarily you become very good friends on the spot, but maybe after one person quit from this company and they maintain their communication, their friendship, and somehow they become really good friends. That's one scenario I often see. But but nowadays, you know. Because of this kind of rise of remote working,、um, social media, you know, some more. It's true that sometimes, you know, colleagues even don't have the chance to see each other or communicate with each other face to face, and that's one issue I I can think of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also people are moving around、um, to different cities, shifting jobs as such. And、um, sometimes、yeah. when you're not physically in the same city, in Beijing, for example, if you cross the city to come and see a friend, that is considered as a lot of input into a friendship because that might be a two-hour drive or something like that. So when you're not in the same city, you're not working in the same company or area or whatnot anymore, and to maintain that. That friendship is quite a bit harder than what it used to be. Josh, what do you think are some of the possible reasons that contribute to a so-called friendship deficit or recession that can be translated across cultures and boundaries? That, in that sense, yeah. Well, I guess we often say that the world is getting smaller as social media, the internet. Allows us to communicate instantly, regardless of where we are physically, geographically in the world, and also travel is becoming easier, cheaper, faster. And we always talk about the world getting smaller, but the reality is actually, at least emotionally, the world is becoming more distant for many people. And we, as humans, as animals, we are supposed to be in small tribes. That's I believe anyway, and most sociologists do as well. That that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to have small communities where we know people and we can rely on one another. In cities, the rates of loneliness are the highest in the world. The lowest rates of mental health are always in the biggest cities in the world. And social media has also proved to make people feel less attached, less emotionally attached to people. And although you may have an infinite amount of friends and people you can reach out to online, actually having a true Friendship, whatever that word means, but what I consider to have a true friendship is really hard, and I guess that it's becoming increasingly difficult. The solution to this, it's quite difficult to know what the solution will be. And now that we have artificial intelligence and chatbots that can replicate humans that could even be our friends, I don't really know what the future holds. But I guess one practical thing that I would say we could do, or anybody can do, is to Engage in some sort of activity that you enjoy that is maybe separate from social media, at least. And I do believe that a lot of good relationships, friendships, platonic and romantic, are formed doing this. But I do believe that social media and also the increasing size of big cities、uh, is contributing to this as well. But that's general. That's not just men.、Mm. That's everybody, I guess. Yeah, I just like to quickly jump in and provide a just a not necessarily a female perspective, 
but I think it works for all friendships. Why do you think friendships or these kind of close relationships are far more prevalent among women than men is that we put in the work. Friendships are hard, especially after you've turned into an adult. Because in school, you know, we probably you have all that time to hang out with your classmates. And yeah, I think most of our friendships from childhood are formed that way. But when you're an adult, you need to make that conscious effort to maintain a friendship. And it means time. It possibly means money and it means energy and emotions. And if you're not willing to put that in, then of course you're not going to reap the benefits. And of course there are certain maybe gender specific hallmarks in how we do it. Um, Men and women could be different. So for example, like women, sometimes, you know, we, we could be on WeChat the whole day. Um, just asking like how are you doing and then you don't have to respond like super quickly or whatever it is but we're, we're asking each other you know these really simple questions or whatever just showing that you care and maybe I had this piece of cake that I really loved and then you just share it with your friend and then you're you're somehow in our each other's lives even if you're not physically together so much and it's important to have these kind of interactions and it builds up towards a friendship or a meaningful relationship or whatever you call it but you have to put in the time and work and anyway so like as women if we value friendship we go all out and we support each other and I think guys would have each other's back as well. It's probably just in a different way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But okay. But do you think it's important? Is it an issue if a person doesn't have a close friend? Is a close friendship overrated? I don't think it's overrated at all. I think that it's really important. Let me also offer you a little tidbit that I found mm. online this morning before the show. So I was looking at Chinese uh, social media and, and see if this story sort of shows up in a similar fashion. And apparently there are a lot of posts of men, grown up men saying that, oh, I don't have close friends, but that's okay. I'm self-sufficient. I'm happy being a loner and that's perfectly okay. Yeah, so just checking with you, Josh, do you think it's really you know that important to have the so-called close friendship? I do. I, I think that, again, we're talking about friendships, romantic relationships, family. We like to pigeonhole all of these things, but I think that there's a lot of crossover, actually. I think that, for example, a family member could be your close friend or even your romantic partner could be a close friend. But having a close friendship, having somebody that you can rely on, that you can communicate with, be open with and enjoy their time. I think that's very important. Humans are social animals. Sure, we're quite different. And there may be some of us that are less social than others. That's true for sure. But yeah, I think that it is important and I don't think it's overrated in any way, shape or form. Um, It may just be that you you haven't met somebody that you truly bond with yet. I'm not really sure, but generally speaking, I think biologically we we need this we're we're social animals do you guys disagree no just the way you put it it made me think of a romantic relationship because it's kind of (laughs) similar it is it is similar i think there is a lot of crossover here I, i really do i think that your family member could be your best friend maybe your sibling 
I think mm. it's true. Or your wife or husband. And that's another be. thing. Yeah. And these are the lucky people, you know? Apparently online, there are some, didn't find many, some married guys, men, come out and say, yeah, I have my wife, have my baby, and marriage or family life has taken up all my headspace already, and I have a job to do, and that's enough. Yeah, and that just made me think, huh, for both men and women, after marriage, after childbirth, some people might just have put friendship on the back burner, and and that's okay, too? Yeah, I don't know. It's To me, it's not okay. You know, socialization with other people is still very, very important, you know. Not, you know, not necessarily realistically speaking that sometimes you might need assistance or help from your friends, but um, really from a uh, personal a personal development uh, perspective, like uh, if your whole life after work is dominated by family, wife, baby, um, it could uh, set a limit to your personal vision, development, and the future. That's, you know, that's the way I would have put it. Right. <laughs> well, I don't really have a stance or an opinion on this. I, I think ultimately, though... The primary relationship we have is always with ourselves and how we treat others is a reflection of how we are treating ourselves. And that gives me good reason to treat myself well, pamper myself so that I can do that to my friends. And when I think about this, though, you know, once your social connections or, or this circle changes, for example, when you get married, have kids or take up more of these roles in life and maybe the priority list of these relationships shift it most possibly will do but i think having a core relationship is really important however you see the order of these things and i obviously don't understand men Coming up next, whatever you do, waking up in the middle of the night, don't roll over and check your clock. Stay tuned to find out more on this. Looking for passion? How about fiery debate? Want to hear about current events in China from different perspectives? Then tune in to Roundtable, where East meets West, and understanding is the goal. It's the Hour of Roundtable with myself, He Young. I'm joined by Josh Cotterell on the line and Ding Hong in the studio. If you wake up in the middle of the night, it might be tempting to check the time and see how many more hours you have left before morning. But apparently, this is a bad idea. Why? Well, <laughs> yeah, because there is a term called uh, biological clock, right? Because in, in this particular biological clock, within anybody's uh, body can help regulate the timing of the bodily processes, including your circadian rhythm, namely a 24-hour cycles that are part of the body's internal clock running in the background to carry out some essential functions and processes. And one of the most important and really well-known circadian rhythm is the sleep-wake cycle. Like uh, you go to bed at a fixed time and you wake up at a fixed time. That's very important for your health. Josh, do you agree with this assessment that don't look at the clock, don't check the time? 
in the middle of the night, ever. I mean, maybe not ever, um, <laughs> but yeah, generally speaking, I think there's a lot of logic to this. Is I think there? Tell it's us. pretty fair. And most people, when they're checking the clock, it's not really a clock anymore, is it? It's probably a phone or mm -hmm. a smartwatch or something like this. And this also comes with a lot of issues because, of course, we, we know about blue light, right, emitted by electronic devices. This can interfere with your body's natural production of melatonin, which is a hormone that helps you with sleep. And also exposure to blue light can disrupt the quality of your sleep um, generally. Also, mental stimulation. I think for many people, the phone is just this throbbing orb of anxiety and stress right yeah it's not something that you should be looking at in the middle of the night to help you fall asleep maybe not for everybody maybe i'm projecting a little bit i know certainly for myself it is so uh, i think checking the time if it's especially on your phone in the middle of the night it can trigger pretty negative feelings um i think many people they may if they're honest they'll check their phone and then they might open it Ooh. and quickly open. check their wechat messages just to see <laughs> and that may seem harmless but Actually, it's not. It's not harmless. So, yeah, yeah uh, I think that there's quite a lot of logic to this. Yeah. To me, it's always opening a can of worms if you fire up social media apps at the middle of the night. And sometimes, I don't know if you're like this, but some of us, we're a little bit more vulnerable at night. And then just looking at other people having a great time when you're not, and you just end up in that social media oh, yeah. slash emotional black hole and i don't want to be there so just don't go there don't look at the notifications but the time thing is a little bit different for me in the sense that how could you tell your brain to regulate it properly that okay now i know i have maybe three more hours of sleep before i need to go to work or if you don't check the time then you wouldn't know so waking up in the middle of the night, I don't think is a great thing. But if you're there, then getting yourself comfortable in going back to sleep, I think is essential. And part of it for me, at least on a work day, is that I would like to know how many more hours do I have left before I have to get up ready for work. So personally, I don't really agree with this. But what do you think? Yeah, I agree as well because oh. uh, it's a, it, it could be a leading source of anxiety. Like when you think about how many more hours do I have till I have to get off the bed, right? So, and, and when you have this kind of anxiety coming out of your mind, your brain, when you are lying on bed, it really keeps you up. Right. What about this? It'd be like, oh, great. I have two more hours before I can dress up and go to this job I absolutely love. Yeah. How many of us live life like that, huh? Yeah. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you so much, Josh Cotterell and Ding Hung for joining the discussion. I'm He Yang. We'll see you next time.